0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 50, four through eleven. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: Thank you, Emily. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church. I've actually only been on staff now uh, entering into my fourth week. Though I've been a member here along with my wife for for 15 years. So I am the oldest new person there ever was. Something else you should know about me. Growing up, uh, I was an odd looking kid. I had peculiar features, for instance, my hair, rather than grow long, it grew tall. My uh, measurements were always a little bit on the shorter end of the measuring stick. For whatever reason, I didn't start losing my baby teeth till around fourth grade. So I, I was a bit odd, I got my fair share of teasing. My brother and I, we had a, a job when we were in grade school, we were paper boys. And we delivered the San Mateo Times five days a week. We also had to go door to door with that job, collecting the subscriber fees. That was a fun part of the job. There was one instance in in, in particular where my brother rang the bell and and an older lady answered. She looked like she was someone's grandma. And and, uh, she said to my brother, oh, how nice. It's the paper boy. And then she looked at me and said, and who are you? You must be the younger sister. I was, so, I was so stunned, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't even know how to respond. I think I just said, yes ma'am, I'm the younger, the younger sister. That's who I am. I mean, I knew I was a little odd looking, but did I really look like a girl? All right. She thought I was a girl, but there was another instance right around the same time in my life where someone said something to me that more than stunned me, it hurt. It straight up hurt. I was riding my bike with a few of my friends and, and we were headed to the downtown part of where we lived and it was a stranger. I'd never seen this person before, never seen him since. I don't know how old he was, I knew he was older than me, and so I presumed him to be a a grown-up, someone probably who should know better. And as we neared him, we were going slow enough where I could hear what he said, and he was looking right at me as he said it. He looked at me and said, oh, wow, what an ugly looking kid. I went home and I told my mom what had happened. I was in tears, and she did her best to to console me, telling me something only a mother would tell her son. Oh, don't let that get you down. He's just jealous because you're so handsome. <laughs> Only a mother would say that in a moment like that, right? Thanks, Mom. It was a total stranger. I didn't know him. He was a grown-up and it hurt. Why do we get hurt by what people think of us? Why do we get hurt by the way people define us, how, how the world might identify us? I think we get hurt because on some level we, we fear it might be true. What if it's true? What if if my worst insecurities that I have are true? What if all the things that people say about me are true? I have one question for you today. Just one question. Who are you? Who are you? We're in a sermon series entitled Isaiah, Following God in a Difficult World. Identity. Identity. It's a difficult topic. It's what makes part of the world so difficult, how, how people identify us, and sometimes even worse, how we identify ourselves. Identity is a trending topic right now, right? And there are all kinds of answers out there. So who do you listen to? Who do we listen to? Isaiah tells us about a servant. And this is good news. For most of the book of Isaiah, we're seeing words of judgment from Isaiah. The people of God had difficulty to say the least, being faithful to God. That's a, a theme that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. Another theme that's repeated is, and that's reiterated to God's people time and again is the people of God were given an identity. They were told, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be my people. Well, God's people had a good bit of difficulty with their identity. They were constantly looking at the neighboring kingdoms, looking over the fence of the kingdoms beside them, and saying, hey, what, what are your gods all about? What, what is he, she, or they all about? And maybe, maybe we could even incorporate the worship of your God in with the worship of our God. Well, God wasn't having it. You've forgotten your identity. So throughout most of Isaiah, in fact, right from the get-go when Isaiah was called by God to preach, he told him right out of the gate, Isaiah, you're gonna be the least popular preacher there ever was. No one's going to listen to you. They're a stiff-necked people, and they will not listen. Preach to them my words of truth, which will serve as words of judgment for them. Now, there's something you should know about God and his discipline. It's always carried out with a restorative view in mind. In fact, the whole world is is being carried out. The plan for the whole world is being carried out with a restorative view in mind. So right around chapter 39 and 40 in Isaiah, his tone changes from confrontation to assurance. He moves from confrontation to assurance. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And then, here in the final chapters of Isaiah, he prophesies about a person he identifies as the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is going to be the one who will come into the world and bring salvation. Who is this mysterious servant Isaiah is prophesying about? Who is the servant who finally, once and for all, will bring deliverance to God's people? The writers of the New Testament tell us this servant of the Lord is Jesus. Jesus is the one who will save God's people. Jesus is the one who will bring deliverance and restore his people's identity. When uh, Emily read the scripture a bit ago for us, she was telling us Isaiah's description of this servant who is Jesus. And we can break that passage up into three sections. The first two sections tell us something about Jesus, who he is. Unique features about, about Jesus, about the servant who was to come. And if we can understand these two unique features about Jesus in this passion, passage, it will help unlock our questions about identity. It will help us understand the one question we're trying to answer today. Who are you? Who are you? Let me read for you once again. This is verse 4 from our scripture passage today. This is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Isaiah is describing for us the servant of the Lord, and he's putting it in the first person, so it's just as if Jesus were were talking himself, and he says says this, verse 4, "...the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught." What what is Isaiah describing here? He's he's presenting the servant of the Lord as a well-taught disciple, a student, a good student, a scholar who has total devotion to the Word of God. I I have two sons. Uh, My older son is Jack. He's 13 years old. And uh, I might describe Jack as an Apple product enthusiast. He loves all things Apple. Okay, he loves MacBooks, iPods, iPads, iPhones, AirPods, Apple Watches and Apple TV, Apple Pencil, too. Okay, he loves all of it. In fact, if you show him your iPhone, he can tell you what kind it is and and probably what kind of chip and processor are inside of it, too. Just by looking at it, he loves all things Apple. the other thing that my son loves besides Apple products is Taco Bell. He loves Taco Bell. At any given moment, if you ask Jack, hey, where would you like to go eat? Without hesitation, you'd say, Well, Taco Bell, of course, okay? In fact, just a couple weeks ago, he and I took a father-son trip to Chicago. And you know Chicago. Chicago's got all kinds of great food. has deep dish pizza, right? Chicago-style hot dogs. Garrett's popcorn. We did it all. Hey, Dad, can our next meal come from Taco Bell? Was said on more than one occasion. To which I said, No because I'm a mean dad. (laughs) Point being, if you engage in a conversation with Jack, chances are 90% of the time it will be about something related to Apple. When you bump into Jack, Apple knowledge falls out, along with a request to take him to the drive-thru of Taco Bell, okay? That's my boy. What made Jesus a well-taught disciple, a scholar? What it means to be a disciple of God is that you open your eyes and your ears to the word of God. The servant of the Lord is immersed in the scripture. What we read in the gospel accounts is that when people engage Jesus in a conversation, it seemed like 90% of the time he talked about, he, he responded with, with scripture. When you bumped into Jesus, the scriptures fell out. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, his response, it is written. It is written. It is written. When the Pharisees tried to pin him and accuse him and corner him, how would he respond? It is written. When you you bumped into Jesus, the scriptures would would just fall out. Every action of his was guided and informed by the scriptures. He took no action that ran contrary to the word of God. By way of example, tracking back a bit in the scriptures, if we go to uh, Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, uh, and God tells Moses, I've heard the cry of my people, and I want you to take them out of Egypt, that they no longer may serve Pharaoh, that they may worship me. And and Moses tells God, That's a great plan, Lord. But when I go back to your people and tell them this is what we're going to do, who should I say it is that sent me to do this? And God answers, Tell them I sent you, the God of your fathers. No, no. Who, Who do I tell them sent me? Your name. What is your name? What should I tell them your name is? Who are you? What is your identity? And it's here that God reveals to Moses his holy name. In our Bibles, that name is rendered as I am who I am. I am. I am has sent you the eternal one, the self-existent one, the one with no beginning and no end, the one who always is and always was. I am who I am. Now, an interesting side note of that holy name of God, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they rendered that I am who I am as ego, emi." Ego imi. Now, why is that important? Because if we fast forward to the New Testament, to the book of John, and we look at the instances where Jesus made many of his I am statements, in each one of those instances where he makes those I am statements, it's rendered as ego emi. Which was not common if you were just making a general I am statement. If I am hungry, I am full, I am tired, you wouldn't use ego emi. Okay? Yet Jesus, when he would make these statements, he would use the egoimi construction. Do you see what that means? Whenever Jesus made one of those I am statements, he was connecting a thread all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Whenever he made those I am statements, he was declaring his divinity. He was declaring his identity. He was declaring his union with the God eternal. Now, why do I tell you all this? I tell you all of this because of John 18. You, could, you know what I love about John 18? You could read this passage a hundred times and miss the drama that's unfolding here. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed by Judas and arrested by officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came with lanterns, torches, and clubs. They came, they came looking for a fight. When Jesus sees them approaching, he says, whom do you seek? And they said, we came for Jesus of Nazareth. And do you know what Jesus replied with? Ego, eimi. We're told that when he said that, When he said those words, once again declaring his divinity, they drew back and fell to the ground. When he said that, he literally blew them off their feet. It's as if he pulled back the layer of humanity that veiled his deity, just the ever slightest bit, just enough to blow them off their feet. In that moment, do you see what's happening there? He has all the power in the world. He he could summon every angel of heaven to come down and obliterate the officers that showed up with their measly clubs and torches. He could have done that. He could have wiped them all out right there on the spot. But instead, do you know what he did? He extended his hands and he said, go ahead, bind me up. They bound him up to lead him away. But before he did that, before, after Peter's futile attempt to, to, to fight back, Jesus said, arrest me, let these men go. Do you know why he said that? says to fulfill the scriptures because he was guided by scripture he was doing what the scriptures were telling him to do in Matthew chapter 26 in the same account Jesus tells his disciples no put your swords away all this has taken place that the scriptures might be fulfilled though he was in the form of God he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant He was guided by the scriptures every single day, every waking minute, every single second, every single action of his ministry was guided by the scriptures. Did he have the right, the power, the authority, and the opportunity to destroy those who came to to arrest him without question, without question? This is what the passage shows us, but instead, his every action, his every thought, the servant of the Lord is guided continually by the scriptures. He was a student of the scriptures. He was a scholar of God's word who has given himself total devotion to it. So what does this mean for you and me? How does this help us answer our question today of who are you? Who are you? Who am I? If Jesus Christ, the servant that Isaiah is telling us about here, if if his every thought, his every action is guided and informed by the the Scriptures, if he didn't move unless it was in in accord with, with Scripture because he was a disciple of it, what does this mean for you and me? Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? Everyone always asks this. What's God's will for my life? Would you like to know what God's will for your life is? Would you like to know? I will tell you. I will tell you what God's will for your life is it's right here. First Thessalonians 4.3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it. That's it. That's God's will for your life. We can go now. Bring in the band. No, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before we do that, let's, let's review for us what sanctification is, because I think that's really important here. What is sanctification? It's the process whereby you and I are being made to be like Christ more and more. A little bit more each and every day. The Holy Spirit is molding you into the image and character of Christ. That's what he's doing right now. He's never not doing that. Pastor Todd Teller once told me that. He's always doing it. This is his will for you and he won't be thwarted. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He will do it. So if if it's his objective to make you more and more like his son, do you see what this means? Your identity is being conformed to his. So you should be a student of the word. Your actions, every last one of them should be guided and informed by scripture. Now, I know that sounds a little cliche, I know. How do we discover our identity? We, we have to read our Bibles. Well, is that the best answer you've got? That's the best answer I've got because that is the best answer. You see and hear all the voices in society today on social media, from your friends, at your family, all the voices that are competing for your attention. They're competing for your attention and they're trying to shape your identity, whether you like it or not. They're competing and trying to shape your identity with information that may or may not be true. So how do you counter that? How do you stabilize your heart? How do you stabilize your mind? When we take the word of God and we put that in our hearts and and in our heads, we're putting into ourselves the only thing that in the world that we know is true. The only thing in this world we know won't misguide us, the only thing in this world that is sure to give us peace, when the word of God is placed inside you, it displaces all those other things that are misleading you. This is why Jesus pressed into the word. This is why he was such a student of the word. Because it will not misguide, it will only give us truth. And there's nothing else in the world like that. But how do you do it? Where where do you start? You you just got to start. You just got to start reading it. Open it up every day. As it says in our scripture passage today, morning by morning, you have to do this. Put it in your heart and in your mind. There are plenty of Bible reading plans out there that will take you through the Bible in a year. And if that's too fast of a pace, it'll take you through in two years. It's, it's, really, very, it's really just 15, 20 minutes a day. That's it. And you can make your way through the entire Bible. Do you like podcasts? How many of you like podcasts? Oh, I love podcasts. I've, I've True crime podcasts, I've heard them all listen to every last one of it, it's another way that I realize that I'm becoming old. Because it used to be when I would get in my car, I would roll the windows down, turn the music up loud, hair on fire, and just away I would go. Now I travel around with the windows up and I'm listening to people talk. This is, I'm becoming my dad. I remember I would get in my dad's car, I'd turn on the radio and it was Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. And I thought, this is so boring. And, and now it's me, I've become my dad. I'm listening to people in talk in my car. Do you know that there are podcasts of a reader literally reading the Bible to you word for word? That, that's all it is. Someone reading the Bible to you, you can subscribe to, subscribe to it and it's delivered to you every, every day and you can have someone read you the Bible and you can follow along with them. It's true. What a time to be alive, you know? <laughs> the point is if we're going to understand who we are, if we have any hope of cutting through the noise, it's going to have to be as a result of having our eyes and ears for God's word. Put the word of God in your heart and your mind so when you're bumped, when you're pushed, When you're shoved, the word of God falls out of you. It guides you. It informs you. So the first thing our passage tells us is that Jesus was a scholar. He was a disciple of the word. So he was guided by the word. He lived and died by the word. Which leads us to the second thing we see in our passage in Isaiah. And that is that the servant of the Lord, that's Jesus, is a suffering servant. He's a suffering servant. Isaiah is telling us that Christ's learning and his suffering went hand in hand. The learning and the suffering of Christ went hand in hand. As Isaiah describes Jesus as a learner and a follower of the word, he then moves right into this, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's It's not just that Jesus suffered. As our passage in John showed us, he willingly suffered. It wasn't just a byproduct of who he was, it was part of his identity. He suffered as a part of his learning. Hebrews 5 8 tells us, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I know this can be a tough pill to swallow. I know. God's prescription for us is not that we avoid pain, but like the servant of the Lord, the suffering is part of the learning experience for us. It's baked into our sanctification and it's forming our identity. My other son, Logan, he's 11 years old, and uh, we recently, he recently had an epiphany about this. We went for a bike ride, and we decided to, to ride to this nearby park. And conveniently for us, the ride to this park is almost entirely downhill. We barely had to pedal. Once we got to the main road, it was just a downhill ride all the way to the park. And when we got there, we stopped, and, and we regrouped. And I looked at him, and I said, well, that was easy. And he replied back to me, yeah, I wish everything was downhill all the time. Now, this is a parenting moment, right? This is a parenting moment. So I told him, well, if you just went downhill, you could never go back to the place you were. You could never go home. And then he told me, well, you just set up a new home where you were. (laughs) I'm being outwitted by a fifth grader here. Now, at this point, I thought, well, I could argue with him here. I could, I could point out to him how impractical this is, and how, and how would you get your stuff from the old house to the new house you 'd have to find a mover who lived uphill to be able to bring your stuff downhill and then once you got your stuff that you had to what' about closing when you had to close on the house you 'd have to find an attorney who lived downhill from your house, and so you went downhill to that house to, to that office, and then what would you do you 'd close on the house, but now your house is uphill, so you 'd have to move again and I see how impractical this is. I could have said all this to Logan, but instead I said to him. Yeah, you're right, (laughs) parenting fail, okay? But then all on his own, he said, if everything was only downhill, then there wouldn't be any challenges and nothing would be gained. And before I could tell him what a profound thought that was, he told me, hey, I just came up with something really wise. It is really wise, and it is really biblical, too. There's something to be learned from the uphill. There's something to be gained from the struggle. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus was going to begin his journey to Jerusalem, and he sent some messengers ahead for for them to find a place in the Samaritan villages where they could stay as they were passing through town on their way to Jerusalem. And when those messengers got there... The Samaritan villagers realized, oh, so Jesus is not staying here? He's just going to pass through town to go to Jerusalem? What you need to know about Jews and and, uh, Samaritans is that they didn't get along very well. So when they found out that Jesus was just passing through town on his way to Jerusalem, they said, no, you can't stay here. No, you're not staying here. And so you know what? I love this. This is so funny to me. Do you know what James and John then then, uh, uh, asked Jesus? Jesus. Do you think we should throw a, you, should, you should throw a fireball down from heaven and torch them for saying that? That's almost verbatim what they said. And Jesus' response to that, he rebuked them. He rebuked them. Why did he, why did he do that? Because there's something to be gained here. The suffering is a necessary part of the learning. There's something to be gained in the rejection. As Isaiah tells us how the servant offers up his back, he doesn't turn his face from those who spit on him. Why does he do that? What's to be gained by, by taking the mocking and the spitting? He tells us in verse 7 and following, But the Lord God helps me. Though there's mocking, though there's spitting, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What's he describing there? He's describing a servant who knows his identity and, and, and his calling. It doesn't matter what the accusations are. It doesn't matter what the insults are. Why? Because he who vindicates me is near. His place with the Father is so secure. His understanding of his purpose and plan is so firmly set that any opposi- opposition, any mocking or spitting can't steer him elsewhere. God is my vindication. God is my identity. I'll not be dissuaded. Dissuaded from what? Where was he headed? What was he doing? Though they mocked him, though they spat upon his face, his face was like a flint, a stone that won't be moved. He he pressed on. For what? For what? What was he doing? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. That's you. That's you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew his identity, he knew his purpose, and he knew he would be vindicated so that you would be vindicated. So who are you? What is your identity? You are being made to be like Christ. You are being made to be like the servant. You are someone who has been vindicated by God Almighty. That's who you are. And you are following in the footsteps of the servant of the Lord. He was vindicated so that you would be vindicated. The legal standing that was placed on him will be placed on you. And his identity becomes yours. In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul rattles off a lot of labels. Thief, greedy, drunkard, idolater, swindler, sexually immoral. Paul isn't trying to Compile an exhaustive list here. It could be any number of things in this list. The church at Corinth that he was writing to got themselves into all kinds of stuff. And then Paul goes on to tell us that the people with these identities will will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were vindicated. In other words, you have a new identity. Those other labels don't define you anymore. Even if you still find yourself haunted by the former things. Even if someone reminds you of your former labels, your insecurities, the things that you fear are true about yourself, you have a new identity now. This is your identity. This is who you are and nothing on this earth or anywhere else can change that. What, what labels have been placed on you? What labels have you placed on yourself? Failure? Addict? Uneducated? Unqualified? Unattractive? Slut? Ugly? Loser? Unlovable? Unwanted? Irredeemable? Unforgivable? And such were some of you, but you have a new identity. This is something I found myself telling my children over and over again. When someone says something to you that hurts them, it's, it's, it's something I have to tell myself all the time. I, find, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to preach this sermon to myself more times than I care to admit. Whatever they say to you, whatever they call you, whatever they label you, they don't get to decide that. Your heavenly father gets to decide that. And this is what he has called you. This is what he's called you. Child of God. Co-heir with Christ justified, buried, raised, and alive with Christ, chosen, loved, set apart, born again, God's own possession, anointed, redeemed, friend of Christ, new creation, declared righteous, God's workmanship, rescued, adopted, forgiven. I can do this all day. I can keep going if you want. These are your new labels. This is who you are. This is your identity. The last two verses in our passage, they call us to action. It it, it calls us to follow the lead of the servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. As we come to this table, we are making a declaration. We're making a declaration that this this is where our hope resides. This is where our identity lies. In the finished, irreversible work of the servant of the Lord that has been applied to you. Please pray with me. Our Father, take away our insecurities. Take away our fears and remove from us those labels others put on us and the labels that we put on ourselves that that just aren't true. Help us to be students of your word so we never ever forget your eternal truth. Place your word in our hearts so that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the mocking and the spitting, we're awakened to our undefiled identity in your Son, Jesus Christ. Make us like him For it's in his name that we pray and for his sake that we pray it. Amen.